Go ahead and turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. Today we're going to be focusing on verse 7 through 15. And um, we're looking again at the Sermon on the Mount as part of our sermon series going through the life of Christ. So Matthew chapter 6. So just go ahead and cue it up there. And in a second here we're going to read that. But as as you find that section of Scripture... I had meant to bring with me this morning, I totally forgot, as for, as for my illustration, a, a set of, of, of instructions, an instruction manual. But I'll just ask you kids out there, how many of you guys have um, uh, maybe gotten something? Yeah, I brought some extras up here. Um, if you've maybe gotten something like at Christmas or for birthday or something, and your father has tried to put it together, and, um, and he had to have a big old set of instructions and all these little parts laid out, has that ever happened to you guys? And it, I'm sure he did it really quick, right? Or maybe it took him, like me, several hours to put something together because he had to read these complicated instructions. Has that ever happened to you guys? Maybe a few times. Well, you know, instruction manuals come. I, I went back there and just found some um, in the back of the church building here. We've got this really big, thick one here so we can know how to use that printer that's back there. So this whole book, in order to, to know how to use a printer... Uh, this is our instruction guide to know how to turn off the alarm, all right, on the building. So, you know, instruction manuals can be pretty complicated. Not to mention that sometimes the product wasn't produced in the United States and therefore it had to be translated into English. And therefore, not only is the instruction manual a little bit complicated, it makes no sense, right? And that happens a lot. Now, we think about how complicated a printer is. That 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 printer back there is pretty complicated. It's it's a pretty uh, neat little um, product, and so it needs some instructions. The, the, the alarm system is pretty complicated, uh, but those pale in comparison to how amazing, those are, those are amazing technologies that we have, but they, don't, they pale in comparison to how amazing it is that we sinful human beings are allowed to communicate directly to the creator of the universe. So all the technology that man has been able to produce and all the, 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 the stuff that man has to give us to know how to use that technology pales in comparison to the amazing truth that sinful, fallen, rebellious human beings can speak directly to the creator of the universe and ask and make petitions before the creator of the universe. And so when we think about the instruction manual for that, you would imagine that that would be pretty complicated too because that's much more amazing than our printer or our alarm system. But the instruction manual for prayer was given to us by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and what's been dubbed the Lord's Prayer. And it is very simple, but it is very, very deep. So that's what we're going to be focusing on the next few weeks is this instruction manual that Jesus gave us for prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to begin today in verse 7. Now, this is dubbed... The Lord's Prayer, as I said a minute ago, although Jesus gives us this prayer, the better title would probably be the Disciples' Prayer because he's giving it for us to be praying and or maybe the model prayer. It's a very simple, short, yet very, very profound and sweeping prayer. Tens of thousands of men's sermons could not plumb the depths of this great prayer that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 6. I'll remind you that we are harmonizing the Gospels as we walk through the life of Christ uh, chronologically. It's a series entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Several weeks ago, our journey brought us to the Sermon on the Mount. 
In this sermon, Jesus has been addressing his followers, his disciples, or as I've been saying it, his kingdom citizens. And he's teaching them how to live as his followers, how we are to live as kingdom citizens. The sermon began with the Beatitudes, which were the traits of kingdom citizens. And then that was followed by Jesus teaching how kingdom citizens were to influence the world, were to be salt and light. Then the remainder of chapter 5 was about the relationship between kingdom citizens and the law. And Jesus spoke to us about how he came to fulfill the Old Testament law. And that his followers were not to therefore just forget about the law, but were to become keepers of the law in a way that was much greater than the, than the most religious people of the day. They were supposed to have a righteousness that exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Kingdom citizens are called to a right living, a higher living. But that higher living, that higher law-keeping that we're called to isn't merely the external law-keeping, external rule-keeping that the Pharisees were doing. But instead, we are called to have an inward transformation and a love for and an ability to keep God's law. And that comes from a transformed heart that only comes when someone becomes a kingdom citizen, a follower of Jesus Christ. So at the end of that section in, chapter, in verse 48 of chapter 5, Jesus can tell us, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Because you are God's child, you've been born again into the kingdom, that you should look like your Father. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we are. We're supposed to be aiming for perfection. Of course, no one on this side of eternity... And, or at least not before Christ returns, can live a sinlessly perfect, perfect life. But we are called to progressively grow in holiness. True Christians are called to strive for holiness, and we strive for it only because we are confident that God's Spirit is at work in us, making us more and more and more into the image of Christ. Therefore, we more and more and more reflect our Father rightly. And all true kingdom citizens are called to that. So we strive and we work toward holiness because we know he's at work in us and he's going to fulfill that. He's going to finish that job in us. And so, as we saw last week, when there's a great call for holiness, there's always a great temptation to hypocrisy. So that's why Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 6, warns us. He says... Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus fleshed out that principle in three sections that we looked at last week. Verses 2 through 4, verses 5 through 6, and verses 16 through 18. And in each section he deals with, first of all, he deals with giving, then he deals with prayer, and then finally he deals with fasting. And the section of scripture we're looking at today, uh, verses 7 through 15... Okay, or we're going to start looking at today because it's going to take us a while. Verses 7 through 15 are an extrapolation or an extension, if you will, on Jesus' teaching on prayer. And that's how we should look at this. So please, uh, with that background, please stand, if you would, as we read uh, verses 7 through 15 of Matthew chapter 6. We stand here at Harbin's and we read God's Word because we honor God's Word as infallible, as inerrant, as totally sufficient. For all areas of our life. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. The word of the Lord says this. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning and we want to examine this passage of Scripture, this first part of the Lord's Prayer, Father, I pray that you would help us because we are so weak. We will want to, because of our sinful inclinations, we will want to read into the Lord's Prayer what we want to be there. But that's not how we study Scripture. And that's not how I'm supposed to preach. Father, help us to pull out of the text what's there so that we might rightly apply it to our lives and that we might be changed. So, Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear and give me a mouth to speak, Lord, because I understand I understand the responsibility. For your word says whoever speaks is to speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. So, Father, help me to speak rightly. Strike any error from my words. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's be seated. Now, I want to remind you what Jesus said right before the section that we're reading today. Now, at Harbin's, we preach verse by verse through the Scriptures. That's the way we believe that's most effective, and I believe it's most biblical. And so I want to remind you of the context here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus, on his little section on prayer, he says this. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now remember that, as we looked at last week, disciples, kingdom citizens, were were expected to pray. They're expected to fast and to give as well, but you're expected to pray. He says, when you pray. But our motivation for prayer should not be the desire to be seen by men, but instead to be seen by our Father. And our aspiration or our aim, which we talked about these things last week, is not the temporal rewards that come from the applause of men, but the eternal rewards that comes from the approval of the Father. So the overall warning in these passages of Scripture that we we looked at last week including this one on prayer that we just read, the overall warning in these verses is that we must watch out for the temptation to pray in such a way as to impress other people. We must guard against the temptation to pray in such a way that we impress all those who are looking at us. But on the flip side, in the first part of the passage we read today, verses 6 through 8, we need that we are being told now to watch out for trying to pray in such a way as to try to impress God. There's the danger of trying to impress people, and then there's the danger on the flip side of trying to impress God. Now, we are to pray for God's eyes only, for our Father's eyes only, and we are to seek the reward that comes only from Him. But we do not pray thinking that we can somehow impress Him or dazzle Him or manipulate Him into doing what we want Him to do simply by the words we're speaking. 
So that's why in verse 7 he says, When you pray, do not empty up, em- heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now notice a couple of things here quickly on this, this first part of the passage. So earlier in verses 5 through 6, Jesus was speaking about how Jews pray. Because he talks about standing up in the synagogue to pray. But here he shifts to the Gentiles. Gentiles, the people outside of the covenant community. The, the pagans. How do pagans pray? Well, they pray by heaping up empty phrases. Thinking they'll be heard for their many words. They're trying to impress God or manipulate God. They think that God will be, be somehow... Uh, t- uh, taken or, or, or moved by their many words and therefore will listen to them and grant what they ask. But what does Jesus mean here by this, this, these words, empty phrases? Well, this is actually the ESV's best attempt to translate a very strange and rare word that Jesus uses here. The Greek word is batalogeo, which is used only here in the New Testament. It's the only place this word is ever used in the New Testament. Matter of fact, the only other place in any ancient Greek that we can find this word being used is in documents that are totally dependent upon the New Testament. So in other words, Jesus may have invented this word on the spot. Now it may be derived from an Aramaic word. Uh, there's an Aramaic word called batal, which means idle or useless. So maybe it is idle words or useless words, which certainly that could be it. Or maybe it's just an onomatopoeia. You know what that is? Okay, all right, homeschool um, moms or uh, non-homeschool moms, what's an onomatopoeia? What is it? All right, Austin? Right, the word that sounds like what it's describing, okay? So, for example, the word sizzle, sizzle, okay? It's an onomatopoeia. Or the word bark for a dog. The word actually sounds like what it's describing. So that may be what Jesus is doing here. It'd be like him saying the English word babble. Don't just babble, babble, babble. Or blah, 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 blah. Don't just start praying and saying blah, 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 blah. All right, so that's, that's the idea here, I think, in this word. So the translation here, empty phrases, is not bad. But it doesn't quite get the idea, I don't think, for us of what Jesus is saying. I actually think that NIV, believe it or not, has it better this time. NIV says, don't go on babbling like the Gentiles do. Don't go on babbling like the Gentiles do. The old King James uh, translation is vain repetitions. Now, I don't think that's a helpful translation at all because a lot of people have taken that to to think that they can't even repeat a prayer. Well, I said it once. I can't say it again. That's not at all what, what Jesus is teaching here. Matter of fact, Jesus himself in Matthew 26, 44 in the Garden of Gethsemane goes and prays the exact same thing three times. Matter of fact, we are told in Luke 18, 1 to always pray and not lose heart. We are called to that type of prayer, actually. But we're not called to empty, empty meaningless babble. So I think it's important for us here to understand what it is Jesus is saying when he says empty phrases, or at least the way it's translated in the ESV. The point, it seems, is that we are not to pray meaningless mantras meant to manipulate God into doing what we want. Pagan cultures in Jesus' day and pagan cultures still in our day think that a God or a spirit can be manipulated when one constructs certain words or phrases or even noises and then just repeats them mindlessly over and over and over again. I'm sure, Rich, you probably saw some of that in India. Whether it be Hindu, Buddhist, Islam... You see it. There's examples in the, in, the, in, the, 
in the Bible of this. First Kings 18. You know that story, kids? Anybody know First Kings 18? Putting you on the spot here as you just had your review with your teachers in Bible study today. Anybody? Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? And there's the story of the prophets of Baal. And what do they do? They start running around the altar just babbling, just making noises, trying to get their God, their false God, to respond to what they were doing. We see this type of praying in almost all religions, as I already mentioned, but we even see it in religions that claim to be Christian. The Catholic practice of the rosary can be very much vain babbling when it becomes meaningless. Okay? Um, there's even in Judaism, the wailing wall. Okay, they think they can make God respond to certain babbling, certain phrases, certain things they're doing. But even in our evangelical circles, people pray thinking that God will hear them simply because they craft the right words. And ironically, some people use the Lord's Prayer like that and just repeat it thinking they can get God to do what they want him to do. Jesus says, don't be like them. Why? Because you can't manipulate or force God's hand. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. God is sovereign. He is in control. He knows what you need. He doesn't need to be informed and he can't be manipulated. Notice verses 5 through 6 and verses 7 through 8 are both centered on man. The first example of bad praying is centered on drawing attention to oneself in order to impress others. And the other example of drawing attention is drawing attention to one's words in order to impress God. Both are man-centered. Jesus is saying we have to abolish man-centered praying. It's foolish and it's false. True prayer isn't about empty, endless babbling. So how are we to pray? Well, Jesus doesn't just just tell us what not to do. He gives us the instruction manual, as I was saying earlier. Verse 9, pray then like this. Pray then like this. This means that Jesus is giving us a manner to follow, not a mantra to repeat. He's giving us a manner of prayer to follow, a pattern for praying. This is about how we should pray, not necessarily what we should pray. That doesn't mean we can't repeat the Lord's Prayer word for word. We can, so long as you mean the words. (laughs) But it also doesn't mean we have to repeat the Lord's Prayer word for word. So long as we understand the pattern that Jesus is setting for us here. And we let that pattern govern our prayer life. Now real quickly notice a couple other things. First notice that the prayer, how the prayer is constructed. It consists of an introduction, our Father in heaven, followed by six petitions. <coughs> now <clears throat> the first three petitions are petitions regarding God. If you look at the prayer there, you'll see the first three petitions are petitions regarding God. And the last three petitions are petitions regarding us. Um, Petitions we put before God regarding uh, what we might need and regarding us. Secondly, notice the pronouns that are used. It says, our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. What is Jesus doing by using these pronouns? He could have made them singular first person. When you pray, pray, my father, give me my daily bread, forgive me my debts, lead me. But he doesn't do that. Why? He does this, I believe, to remind us that we are part of a community. We are part of a people. 
We are, we are part of the people of God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Our prayers are not for us alone. We are part of a body of people and we pray for the body of people. We are members of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And we will one day stand before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. We are the church of God. This prayer is for the church of God. Our righteousness is practiced in community. I believe that with all my heart. So when we pray for these things, we should be praying these things for others as well. A lot of times we come to the Lord's Prayer like it's just for me. And not at all. It's for community. This is a corporate approach to prayer. In our individualized culture, we tend to make prayer so personal that we practice it at the exclusion of others. Now, don't let verses 5 through 6 cause you to think that prayer is individualistic. Yes, we are to pray in a manner so as to not draw attention to ourselves, but that doesn't mean we pray solely focusing on ourselves. Don't become a Pharisee and take Jesus' words in verses 5 through 6 and make them mean what they do not mean. Jesus says, lock yourself in the inner room, not so that you'll go home and shut out your brothers and sisters and pray by yourself for yourself. But he says that to warn us about being hypocrites who pray not for others and not for God's glory, but to be seen and applauded by man. We have to understand why Jesus tells us what he tells us. So he follows up this call in verses 5 through 6 with a very clear call for us not to negate public prayer or corporate prayer. Prayer is a community project. You praying for me, me praying for you, we all praying for we. So with that, the rest of our time today, we're going to focus on these introductory words. All we're going to do today and the rest of the time we have is focus on verse 9. Okay? So in the next five weeks after this one, we're going to go through all the rest of the petitions. But we're going to focus on verse 9, the introduction and the first petition. So this is what it says. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So I have two questions to guide the remaining time we have this morning. Question number one, how are we to approach God in prayer? And number two, what are we to ask of God in prayer? How are we to approach him and what are we to ask? So the first thing we see here is how are we to approach God in prayer? Our Father in heaven. And the first thing we see, and I'll bring it up on your your notes here, is we simply see this. Let's see if we can get this working. All right, how are we to approach God in prayer? We are to approach God confidently because of his intimacy with us. We are to approach God confidently because of his intimacy with us. Our Father. The way that Jesus tells his followers to approach God was surely startling to his hearers. When Jesus says, Father, he is using a common Aramaic word that children use to address their earthly fathers. It was tender It was intimate. It was a word akin today to perhaps Papa or even Daddy. By using this term, Jesus is telling his disciples to come to him in a deeply personal manner. The Jews would never have used Papa to refer to God. They preferred very high and lofty titles such as Sovereign Lord or or Lord of the Universe, King of the Universe. But Papa? I mean, this would have been unheard of. When Jesus tells them to address the the Father, address the Lord God, Yahweh, like this in prayer. 
Now, God is referred to as, in the Old Testament, as Father in places like Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 103, Isaiah 63, Malachi 2. But those references are spoken of, God is spoken of in a general way, and the word Father is only used by means of an analogy. To think of God in such personal, relational, intimate terms was unheard of. Jesus was shattering concepts of prayer, and more than that, Jesus was showing something. He was showing that an avenue of intimacy was being opened up to God. An avenue of intimacy had been opened up, was being opened up. Now, who would have had the gall, the confidence to speak to Almighty God, Yahweh, as Papa? Well, only those who are kingdom citizens can do that. Only those who have had the pathway of prayer opened up for them by the high priestly work of Jesus Christ. Only those people... Only kingdom citizens can say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus says, our Father. Yes, Jesus' Father, perhaps the disciples are saying, listen, okay, your Father, yes, Jesus. But ours, yours, mine, he is Father to all who are genuinely Jesus' followers to all who are genuinely born again. And friends, he is father in in this sense only to Christians. He is father in this sense that we're talking of in the Lord's Prayer only to Christians. It's popular today to talk about God as being, being everyone's father, but that is not scripturally accurate. Yes, we read in Acts 17, 29... That in the general sense, in the the way that God has given life to all humanity, he is father of all humanity. But in every other way in the New Testament where God is spoken of as father, it's only referring to those who have been born again as Christians, who are followers of Jesus Christ. He is their father and their father alone. God is only father to those who have been made his children, to those who have been sovereignly adopted into his family. John 1 verse 12, but to all who did receive him, Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Romans 8.15 says that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, same word, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Galatians 4 Verse 4 and following, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. These are amazing texts. And this is the amazing truth that Jesus' disciples were beginning to understand when he says, pray like this, our Father. Wow. And for this reason, did you know the early church forbid non-Christians from praying the Lord's Prayer? A non-Christian began to pray. They said, stop. He is not your Father. He is only the Father of those who have been born again. And that's a right way to look at the Lord's Prayer. This prayer is only for the redeemed sinners who have been born again, born into God's family as his children. Christians 
are sinners adopted into the family of God. We are therefore stunningly co-heirs with Christ. Do we grasp the staggering implications of this? There is so much to think about here. We can meditate upon this all day and never ever do it justice. But let us consider a few things this morning. The fact that we are to call him Father means, number one, that God loves us in a deeper way than we could ever imagine. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. He loves us with a love deeper than we could ever fathom. We have actually been folded into the very love that the Father has for the Son. That's what makes the love that God has for Christians different than the love he just has for general humanity. There is a common grace love that God has for all humanity. And that in and of itself is extremely deep. But there is an unfathomably deep love that he has for his children. And so we read in John 17 verse 22. Jesus praying to his father says this. The glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them. Listen to this. And loved them even as you loved me. We are folded into the love that the Father has for the Son, Trinitarian love that we are brought into. That's what the Lord's Prayer says in the first two words. It's astounding. Absolutely astounding. The fact that we are God's children and thus co-heirs with Christ means that the very love that the Father has for the Son is being poured out upon us. That's why Jesus says to Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20 verse 17, when he tells them, he says, go, he's telling her after she has seen him, he puts her on mission. He says, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Whoa. That's awesome. When we start our prayers with this in mind, it changes the way we pray, doesn't it? I mean, meditate upon that love. It'll change the way you pray. We've been brought into the familial love of God. And by the way, this is, let me just go on a little side note here. My friends... If we gut the familial language out of evangelistic methods to Muslims, it is a danger. It is a danger. Why? Because they have to know our Father. Because they already have a view of God, that God is this, this, this powerful, sovereign king. But they don't know him as Father. And we think it's easier to evangelize them by taking the sonship language and the father language and setting it aside. Friends, we are Stripping the gospel from them. We have to hold on to the words of scripture. And Jesus says pray our father. And it implies sonship. And it implies adoption. And it implies an intimacy that a Muslim could never imagine with the current concept of Allah. So let's don't try to soften the message of the gospel. Let's be honest and true and preach it. Back to the message, sorry. That was a side note. Our Father, not only does it mean He loves us 
in a way deeper than we can imagine. It means he cares for us in a deeper way than we could ever imagine. When we understand that he loves us and, and cares for us and he has the love for us that he has for his own son, it, it, like I said, it changes how we pray, but it also changes the expectations of our prayers. It should, it should change our expectations because we know that he indeed cares for us. Matthew 7, verse 7 that we read earlier. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you if his son asks for bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, which I find it interesting. I love how Jesus talks to his disciples. You then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father, and by the way, he's talking to Christians when he calls us evil. Because he says he's your father. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In other words, you evil sinners, you know how to treat your children well. How much more will your father in heaven treat you with the love that he has for his own son? His good gifts may not be what we want in our flesh, but they are what the good father gives to the children he loves. So I read that passage there, and you, you think that where it says, we, 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 if he asks for bread, will, will the Father give him a stone? The problem is God's giving us good gifts. He's giving us bread. He's giving us things we need. But we think they're stones sometimes because he's not giving us what our flesh wants. Like the kid at Christmas, you all can relate to this. And you get the gift, and you open it up, and it's clothes, right? You're expecting a toy, and you get clothes, and you kind of put on the smile and go, Thank you, Mom, for this cardigan sweater. Wonderful. All right, that's not what you wanted, but if you want, it's what you needed. Your mama kept the clothes on you. She kept you from the cold. She gave you everything you needed, but you didn't get everything you wanted as a child. That's what we have to understand. God is our Father, and He cares for it. It changes the way we pray because we're so doggone selfish. And if we understand that he's our father, we should be going in prayer, understanding, expecting him to answer our prayers, but not necessarily expecting him to answer them exactly the way we ask them. Because he knows what's best for us. He knows what's good for us. When we understand that God is our father, it also means that God disciplines us for purposes that we sometimes can't understand. Oh, how we would be able to endure trials and challenges that come our way more if we simply understood God as our father. A good father disciplines his children. Discipline sometimes is in the formative sense that he ordains trials and challenges in our lives to form us into the people he desires us to be. But sometimes discipline is in the corrective sense. He corrects and chastises us when we sin. So Hebrews 12, 5 is the, is the well-known passage about this. He says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. That we may share his holiness. For the, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So when we pray, do we have this in mind? Our Father Do we have this in mind? Hebrews 12, when we pray, our Father, knowing that he is doing things in our life, including tough things, to make us holy, to fulfill Matthew 5, 48. He's fulfilling Matthew 5, 48 in us because he's our Father, so we pray to him like that, knowing that he's doing all things, working them together for our good. Boy, that should change the way we pray. We're only two words into this, this, this prayer so far. Having our mind focus on God as our Father changes how we pray. It changes what we pray for. When we ask for something we th- think, that we think is a need, when we beg God to remove a thorn, when we are in anguish over a difficult situation, when we're disappointed that things didn't go our way, do we or are we coming to him as a Father? But we must also approach God And the second point here is simply this. We are to approach God reverently because of his transcendency over us. If the tendency in the Jewish culture was to approach God with such high and lofty words as to deem him totally unapproachable, then the tendency in our day is to approach God with such laxity and informality that we lose any reverence for who he is. He is our father, but friends, he is our father in heaven. Meaning... He is transcendent and sovereign. I'm afraid that in our modern evangelicalism, we are losing our understanding of God's transcendence. We rightly approach God with with warmth and personal affection, but we often do so at the cost of bringing God down to us instead of seeing ourselves brought up to him. You see it in the songs we sing. And um, to my own shame... Some of the songs I promoted, even in children's ministry. I remember a parent getting upset at the song that we sang at a VBS one year. At the time, I just blew her off, and I thought she was silly. But now I totally agree with her. We had a song we sang. It came with the curriculum. Um, and the title of the song was, Hey God. That's how the song went. Hey God. Hey God. And here we were training all these children to come at God like he's just your buddy. And you ought to have that reverence for God. You are to have that warmth for God, but you're also to have this deep reverence for who he is. He is our father, but he is our father in heaven. We have to be careful. God isn't a great, big, wonderful teddy bear in the sky. Let us guard against the pattern of irreverence that is the product of experience-driven Christianity and shallow theology. How do we do that? Well, we consider all of Jesus' words Regarding prayer, we see, we see and savor Jesus' command to approach God as our Father, but we also must not fail to see and savor his command to revere God as sovereign and transcendent, our Father in heaven. So we pray, Papa, with great affection, but also with overwhelming dignity and solemnity. D.A. Carson put it this way. He said, when they, the disciples, that first heard this sermon of Jesus's, It says, when they first timidly prayed, our Father in heaven. Now think about that for a second. Because they had such a transcendent view of God 
that for them to pray our Father was probably kind of scary. Now, when they first timidly prayed our Father in heaven, no doubt they deeply felt the tremendous privilege of approaching this marvelous God in so personal and intimate a fashion. But today, those uh, those who have lost sight of God's transcendence can no longer cherish the sheer privilege of addressing him as father. When we lose the in heaven part, we actually lose the our father part too. We, we have to understand the privilege. When we pray to our father in heaven, it should stun us. It should create a, a holy hush in our hearts. It should humble us beyond measure. It should strengthen our faith. For when we come to a father who not only cares for every need, we are also coming to a father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. When we come to a father who who delights to guide us and guard us, we also come to a father who has providentially ordered every step. When we come to our Father who, 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 who's not only with us through our trials, we are also coming to a God who supremely works all things together for our good. He is our Father who cares, but He is our God who is transcendent. Only when we pray to a Father who is also transcendent can we have humble, anxiety-defeating prayer. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus do you see we can come to him intimately that's comforting but what's more comforting is he's sovereign over everything and so we can come to him with humble confidence the fruit of meditating upon how privileged we are to come to our father who is in heaven should be that our first request when we pray to God, the first thing off our lips should be that he be glorified. When we think about our Father in heaven, first thing that should come out of our lips when we approach God that way is a request for him to be glorified, which is exactly what we see in this text. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So this takes us into the second uh, element of our service today and, and um, of our sermon today. And I'm going to go ahead and give you all the, the, the requests that we're going to be looking at over the next week. I put my preacher boots on and came up with peas. All right? We are to ask, what are we to ask of God in prayer? We are to pray for God's person to be magnified, which is what we're going to focus on here in a minute. And we're going to conclude the sermon with that. We are to pray for God's program to be fulfilled. We are to pray for God's purposes to be accomplished. We are to pray for God's provision to be imparted. We are to pray for God's pardon to be granted. And we are to pray for God's protection to be afforded. You know something about the Lord's Prayer? It's radically God-centered. It's radically God-centered. So, the first one there. We pray for God's person to be magnified. So that's the only one we're going to focus on today. We pray for God's person to be magnified. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Hallowed is a verbal form of holy. So basically Jesus is teaching us to pray that God's name be upheld as holy. We are praying for God to be glorified, for God's name to be magnified. God's name means his person. A person's name in the Bible is the revelation of his character. So too God's names in the Bible are self-revelations of himself. 
The character of God is revealed in his name. Now, you've probably done studies before on the names of God. And boy, that's a fruitful study to see God showing himself through his names. But let's just focus on Yahweh. I am who I am. God is self-existent, self-sustaining, and totally free. His name reveals who he is. He is the only being in the universe that deserves glory. So our first prayer request is that he get it. He get the glory that only he deserves. Hallowed be your name. To hallow means to make holy or sanctify, as I said a minute ago. Or it means to regard or properly, properly recognize something as holy. So that's how it's used here. We're not praying that God's name will become holy, but we pray that his name will be made known as holy because that's who he is. He is holy. By praying, hallowed be your name, we are acknowledging God's holiness and we are asking that God make his name known. We want God's holy name to be known to the whatever Mumbajubaya people. We want God's name to be known on every corner of the, of the planet. That's what we're praying. Hallowed be your name. Let everyone know how great you are, our Father in heaven. Glorify yourself. Magnify yourself. Please. That's our first prayer request. What's most of our first prayer request out of our lips? It's usually not that. It's usually not that. That should be the first thing we say. God, get the glory. Somehow squeeze glory out of this fool. Glorify your name. Hallowed be your name. So when we're, when we're praying hallowed be your name, our minds are also thinking about God's character, God's nature, God's person. And we are desiring that his, his person be exalted, be magnified, be glorified on all the earth. That's the desire of our prayer. That's the driving ambition of our prayer. That's the purpose for all of our life. Kingdom citizens, friends, exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we exist. So in a very real sense, when we pray for God's name to be hallowed, we are praying for our own life mission to be accomplished. And so we are praying that he make us holy as he is holy. We want to be the 548 people. We want to be those holy people we are called to be and live lives that demonstrate that he is a holy God. Thus, our sanctification, friends, is something we desire because in our sanctification, God's name is glorified. See, don't just think about your sanctification as something for you. Your sanctification isn't ultimately for you. It's for him. It's that he might be glorified. There's a a big debate going on about sanctification right now, which I don't get because it's simply in the Scripture that we are to strive for holiness and fight for it. But we are to give God all the glory because he's the one that accomplishes it in us. I don't understand sometimes why we can't just read the Bible. That's another side note, sorry. How many really desire for God's holiness to be made known when you begin your prayers. It should change our prayer life. Matter of fact, it moves our prayers off of our agenda and onto his agenda. His holiness, his magnification, his glory, it drives us. In a very real way, this first petition oversees all the rest. It's the first petition for a reason, okay? 
This first petition is there for a reason. For if our first passion and our prime aim is for the person of God, the very being of God, to be honored, revered, esteemed, admired, valued, treasured, exalted, magnified, glorified, then all of our other petitions serve that end. Do you understand that? All of the other petitions serve the end of glorifying God. So if our great and primary aim is to glorify and magnify God's name, so that when I pray his kingdom come, I'm praying that his kingdom come for his glory. When I pray that his will be done, I'm praying that his will be done for his glory. When I'm praying that he give me daily sustenance, I'm praying that he supply my needs for his glory. When I'm praying that he forgive me my debts, I'm praying that he forgive me my debts for his glory. When I'm praying that he protect me from temptation, I'm praying that he protect me from temptation for his glory. That first petition drives all the rest. So when challenges come into our lives and we're praying for God to provide for this or that or praying that he will help us with this or that, we need to be asking, am I asking these things of God so that he will be glorified? If not, I need to be careful. When you've sinned and you've fallen short and you seek God's forgiveness, are you seeking God's forgiveness so that he will be glorified? Or just to to check something off so your guilty conscience isn't bothering you anymore? What's the purpose behind your confession of sin? It's for his glory. Or when you're struggling with temptation and you desire wholeheartedly to escape from that temptation, are you praying that you'll escape from that temptation for his glory? His glory should drive all of our prayer requests. We must not lose our focus in prayer. God's glory is our focus in prayer. We must see the centrality of hallowing God's name in prayer. This first petition must oversee and govern how we offer up the remaining petitions. We can't get the rest of the Lord's prayer right unless we get our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name right. So that's the beginning of the instruction manual. Simple. Okay, let's see, one to eight words so far. It's stunningly deep. It's a stunning beginning to the instruction manual prayer. I want us to think about it and meditate upon it this week. For the next five weeks, we're just going to be going to the Lord's Prayer. So just go home and meditate on the Lord's Prayer. That's what you can do to prepare for these sermons. Think about praying to a transcendent God who we also can call Father. Think about acknowledging His holiness in everything we do. But think about this. How can a holy God, a transcendent holy God, be our Father? Oh, don't you see? The opening of this prayer screams the gospel. The opening of the Lord's Prayer screams the gospel. It points to the cross, for only at the cross can rebels become children. Only at the cross is our rebellion paid for and our adoption secured. So the Lord's Prayer, the very first words of the Lord's Prayer, shout the cross. It's amazing. So to my Christian brothers and sisters in here, how's your prayer life? Is it getting routine and stale and weak and mundane? Then friends, just meditate upon the instruction manual. Meditate, consider Jesus' words anew. Meditate upon your Father in heaven. Your Father, my Father. Meditate upon that intimate relationship that you've been folded into. Meditate upon the glory that you've been brought into. Meditate upon His transcendent nature, that He is the sustainer of the universe. 
meditate upon those things. Don't let a puny, dear God, replace our Father who is in heaven. Don't let a puny, hey God, replace our Father who is in heaven. Please. Friend, when you are praying, are you praying because of your overarching desire is to see God's person glorified in the world? Do you see that the desire for God to be magnified should govern how and why and what you pray for? Oh, friend, let us spend some time in Jesus' school of prayer. Learn from the master, our elder brother. Let us learn from his instruction manual how it is that we are to pray. This is a very simple yet very profound instruction manual. To the unbeliever here this morning, I wish you could call God your father, but you can't. Yes, he created you, but to you, because your eyes have been blinded by sin, to be honest, if you're going to be honest, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you think God is a tyrant, and you are in constant rebellion against him. My call for you this morning is simply to repent of your sins, come to Jesus and believe. Jesus died on the cross, taking his Father's wrath against sin on behalf of all who would believe, thus forgiving them. And Jesus rose again, triumphing over sin and death, for the grave could not hold a sinless man. And thereby Jesus has granted us new life, resurrection life, eternal life with our Father in heaven. So come, put your faith in Christ, and he will make you a child. A child of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Oh Lord, I know. I know that all of us in here. Come at prayer sometimes so flippantly. Oh Lord, if anything happens, Father, we pray that you would be magnified in Harbin's by Harbin's becoming people of much deeper prayer as we get finished going through this. However you want to use it, Lord, however you want to use this text, however you want to use the people in this room, Lord, squeeze glory out of these sinners, myself included. Make us people who, who hallow your name in everything we do. Oh, Father, thank you that we can call you Papa. We can come to you as a father. So personal, so intimate. And you care for us so tenderly. You love us so deeply. And what comfort we have, because not only do you care for us and love us so deeply, you run the universe so perfectly. And so we know everything you allow to come into our life is perfectly planned by yourself. And therefore, we can rest and have quiet confidence and have no reason for anxiety. So, God, I pray that you would just do a work in our hearts. Make us people who really, really, really desire for you to be glorified in everything we do. And that we have a quiet, humble confidence. Because you are our Father. And you are a transcendent God who rules the universe with justice and equity and perfection. Lord, I pray for any in here that might not be true believers in the one, one way of salvation, your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin, break through the hardness, give them a new heart so they can all of a sudden understand 
what this babbling is we've been talking about for the first time. Because this makes no sense to the unredeemed. It is foolishness. So God, I pray that you would make hard hearts new and make these complacent hearts of the believers that are in here renewed and fresh so that we might be people who truly worship you in our prayer life. Lord, I ask all this in the precious name of the only one, our high priest, through whom we come to you with great confidence, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name alone. Amen.